Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. And action. Welcome, everyone, to the Hooked on Movies podcast. Today, we will be looking at the 1963 horror film directed by Roger Corman, The Haunted Palace. With me are Ken. Burn the devil. Burn him. And I'm Eric. Joseph, have you not gorged yourself enough on revenge? And Ted. I'll not have my fill of revenge until this village is a graveyard. There you go. Some some great lines by uh, some great actors here for Vincent Price movies. These lines are always the best, especially when we're talking about uh, Edgar Allan Poe movies, ones that are influenced by that. But today we're going to be talking about The Haunted Palace. Ted, give us the details of this movie. The Haunted Palace is directed by Roger Corman. It was a screenplay by Charles Beaumont, and it's based off of the poem by Edgar Allan Poe. But it's also based off of the novel The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. And just an interesting aside about that particular situation, this was a series of movies that Roger Corman was doing for the movie studio at the time. And it's a series of like eight movies, and they wanted to shoehorn this movie in as a Edgar Allan Poe movie, even though this is more closely related to H.P. Lovecraft. If you read the poem by Edgar Allan Poe, except for the name, has nothing to do with the movie. It's two minutes long, the poem. What it's a right, great it's name. A, it's H.P. Lovecraft. Short. Oh, yeah. H.P. Lovecraft is awesome. Pretty much any modern-day horror has some sort of Lovecraftian origin to it. He's a master of uh, storytelling. But So that's a little bit of a backstory about that. But it has a running time of 87 minutes. It had a release date of August 28, 1963, and it had a box office gross of $1.2 million, which if you think about that for back in the day, that's a big chunk of change for the box office. Especially for a a small budget movie by um, American International Pictures, which wasn't spending a lot of money on these at all. And they only had 15 days to shoot a whole movie, so you had to make everything on the cheap. Some of these things are borrowed from other movies that right. they already had done, like The Raven. And Pit and the Pendulum as well. So, The Haunted Palace stars Vincent Price as Joseph Kerwin and Charles Dexter Ward, Deborah Paget as Anne Ward, Kathy Merchant as Hester Tillinghast, Frank Maxwell as Priam Willett, and Dr. Marius Willett, Lon Chaney Jr. as Simon Orne, Milton Parsons as Jabez Hutchinson, Elisha Cook as Micah Smith and Peter Smith, John Dirkus as Benjamin West and Jacob West, and Leo Gordon as Ezra Whedon and Edgar Whedon. And as you were saying earlier, very hard to find reviews of this one? This was exceptionally hard to find any sort of review. It does have a Rotten Tomatoes score. Critic score is 71% and an audience score is 65%. But most of those reviews are all modern day by lesser known critics. The one thing I did find here that I want to just have a little bit to say, John Miller is a writer for the Turner Classic Movies. And he wrote an article about this particular movie. And one of the lines that he had from that particular review said, Vincent Price gives a bravura performance in the Haunted Palace in the dual role. Although the well-shaded takeover of the gentlemanly Charles Dexter Ward by his evil ancestor is somewhat undercut by too much ghoulishly tinted facial grease paint. And that'll be something that we'll be talking about later yeah yeah the 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 green is the evil person right but he had some really nice things to say about the movie like i had mentioned about the hp lovecraft edgar Allan poe thing it's all a ploy by the studio to put it into that series of movies that vincent price did the pit and the pendulum the raven the fall of the house of usher the mask of the red death uh, which is probably the best out of that group 
All right, that that was it. No other reviews. I couldn't find any other reviews. Like I said, that was the only person of heft that I saw that had anything major okay. behind them that did any writing about this movie. So maybe our three reviews will be elevated hey, up. You never exactly. know. Exactly. Let's move on here. Uh, Ken, tell us uh, the plot. In 1765, the people of Arkham, Massachusetts, suspect that Joseph Curran is a warlock. They see a young girl wander up to his palace in a trance-like state down into his dungeons, subjected to a strange ritual in which unseen creature rises up from a covered pit. The townspeople storm the palace to confront the owner. Though the girl appears unharmed, the townspeople believe that she has been bewitched. They drag Joseph out to a tree where they burn him. Before they burn him, Joseph puts a curse on Arkham and that one day he will rise from the grave to take his revenge. Four to 110 years later, Joseph's great-great-grandson, Charles Dexter Ward, and his wife, Anne, arrive in Arkham after inheriting the palace. They find the townsfolk hostile towards them and are disturbed by the horrific deformalities of some of the Arkham's inhabitants. Charles is surprised by how well he seems to know his palace and struck by his strong resemblance to a portrait of Joseph. Simon the palace's caretaker persuades them to stay at the palace and Charles becomes obsessed with the portrait of Joseph. Charles and Anne befriend the local doctor. He explains the circumstances surrounding Curran's death and that the townspeople blame the deformities on the curse. He tells them of a black magic book believed to have been in Curran's possession, and which Curran used to summon evil gods. Curran's plan was to mate mortal women with these beings in order to create a race of superhumans, which led to the deformalities. The townspeople are terrified that Curran has come back in the form of Charles to seek his revenge. The doctor advises Charles and Anne to leave the town. Charles seems to be falling under the control of the painting of Joseph and insists that they stay in Arkham. Charles becomes possessed by the spirit of Joseph Curran. Curran reunites with the two other warlocks, Simon and Jabez. They make plans to continue their work and resurrect Hester, Curran's old flame. Curran's hold on Charles is limited as he tells Simon and Jabez that Charles is fighting him. Curran begins his revenge on the descendants. He kills Ezra Whedon by releasing Whedon's performed son, from his locked room, and lights Micah Smith on fire. Curran then attempts to persuade the doctor that Anne is insane. Curran and his associates succeed in resurrecting Hester, his former mistress. The townspeople storm the palace. The doctor and Anne try to rescue Charles and discover a secret entrance to the dungeon. They are ambushed by Curran, Simon, Jabez, and Hester. Anne is offered to the creature in the pit, while the residents break in and begin to raise the palace. The portrait of Curran is destroyed, breaking Curran's hold over Charles. Charles saves Anne, and Curran's associates seize Charles while the doctor gets Anne to safety. He returns to rescue Charles, and they barely escape the flames. Charles thanks the doctor for saving their lives. However, it is still possible that Joseph Curran still inhabits Charles's body. The end. That is very true. In that last scene, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? All right, well, thanks, Ken, for that plot. Uh, Let's talk about the first time we saw this movie. Uh, For me, it was this week. Um, I've seen many Vincent Price movies in the past, but this one has eluded me. So I watched it three times this week, and I'm looking forward to talking about this movie. Uh, Ted, how about you? Very, very similar. I saw the movie for the first time this week as well. Watched it a few times. You know, I really like Vincent Price. Vincent Price is one of the godfathers of horror. It's amazing that this was a movie that has fallen under the under my radar. Yeah, um, I, I was surprised too that it fell under my radar. Like I had mentioned, this is part of like the Edgar Allan Poe movies from Roger Corman, and I've seen quite a few of those. And it's like I don't know how this one <laughs> fell between the cracks. We'll discuss. Luckily, we get a chance I, to talk about it today. Yeah, I'm Ken, excited. What's your uh, story on this movie? I'm not 100% sure when, but I will say it's probably sometime in the late 80s, early 90s. Probably on TCM, so probably more like mid-90s. Maybe earlier, maybe on Springuli. Because I will say Springuli, for those who are not in the Chicagoland area or have don't have MeTV, Springuli's been around 
for 40, 50 years. He had Simaguli, Son of Spinguli, and now just Simaguli again. He introduced me to Vincent Price movies along with my mom, actually. Me and my mom would sit and watch some of Vincent Price's movies like House of Wax, House of the Long Shadows. Uh, There's just a number of those that I liked. So this one was not as well known, but Eventually, my love for Vincent Price in the 80s and 90s made me seek this out and watched it. I just can't remember exactly when. Well, it's funny you brought up Sven Gulli. My wife is one of the biggest Sven Gulli fans ever. And I was talking to her about that particular fact about whether or not this has ever been on Sven Gulli. And she said that she couldn't remember ever seeing it on Sven Gulli. But I can see it, it being on Sven Gulli. It's though. exactly one of yeah. the things. I don't know if you guys remember, like the USA Network way back in the day, didn't they have somebody called Captain USA? That was on like in the mid afternoons on Saturdays that did a Svengoolie type horror matinee type of thing. Most most large cities locally have Svengoolie like characters doing yeah. uh, little horror movies. But no, on USA, that I honestly don't know. Yeah. See, I'm, uh, I remember that distinctly with my dad. I would say this about Svengoolie there's the 80s version of Svengoolie, which had a bigger library yeah. when they. It went off the air for a number of years and got purchased up by the uh, MeTV network. They have a very limited library now compared to what they had access to before. So back in the 80s, it wouldn't have been uncommon for this movie to show up on Spanguli. Yeah, because they don't have access to any of... They do actually have access to some of the Universal Monsters. Because I've seen those pop up based off my wife watching it. Yeah, Yeah. I think some of the, like the Hammer Horror stuff, they have limited access to some of that stuff. We'll definitely give a shout out to Rich Coase, who plays Sven Gulli here in Chicago. So if you don't know him, look it up. You're going to be happy you did. And streaming has hurt access to a lot of these things as well. It's a weird time for people like that do the shows like Sven Gulli. Yeah, because there's like a limitation on what you can show on right. streaming. And right. some horror movies are not accessible on streaming. In fact, Svengoolie's on the day after on YouTube TV on one of the other channels here. And some movies cannot be shown. They're blacked out because of it being a streaming service. So it's really yeah. weird how things are right now with that. We should have more access, not less. Right, exactly. Let's dive into talking about this movie. Ken, you made a, a great comment uh, off air, if you will, regarding the filming of the movie, the color. It just looks so great, and we were calling it Technicolor. This one actually is not filmed in Technicolor. This one mm-hmm. is actually filmed in something called path color using panavision lens which is very common of the time but the color in this movie especially in the blu-ray remaster is actually incredible it really is a great remastered copy of this i i streamed it off of amazon prime it had to be the blu-ray version i thought it came through really really clear the colors of this movie is kind of one of the things that that makes the movie i mean it's a hallmark of Roger Corman's movies, the use of color and how he does things. He tried to separate himself from the previous generation of horror movies, which were all in black and white. He would use like vibrant color, like Mask of the Red Death. He uses these super vibrant reds and really pop off the screen. And he does the same thing here. And I guess one of the things that you can always tell if you're walking into somebody's haunted house or house of evil, they always have red candles. All over the palace is red candles. It's pretty Yeah, that seems to be a hallmark of uh, any type of evil or haunted or... <laughs> demonic residents are the red red candles blaring there exactly it's funny you mentioned that i didn't i didn't even make that point until you brought it up i'm like that you're absolutely right in that roger corman said that they got a really good deal on these red candles and they've had all these red candles throughout all their productions of these movies so when we talk about the mask of red death the red candles come in very handy in there oh yeah Red candles and blue candles, he had a plethora of those type of things. It's got to be through the lens that they were using of the time. Because lots of these movies in the 50s and the 60s that use color, they just pop really well. And then when you get into the 70s, that color just seems to go away. And we don't get to see that like we do here and and in other Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe type of movies. Yeah, I just love the look of this film. 
they invite you in with the colors the colors and the and the musical score which can be a little repetitive but it's a it's very repetitive yes but it but works it, and the score itself is good if you're going to repeat something it might as well be what you're playing here i will say this in response in the 70s it was another change those directors were changing from what are considered uh studio directors like roger corman and they were moving everything into a more artistic style that's when you have your roman polanskis and your de palmas and scorsese's it's more of a artistic mode whereas this is the panavision and everything is was designed to burst the color off of the screen because they set themselves apart from black and white uh it's an interesting evolution that way but this movie here is absolutely wonderful Eric, you had mentioned about the transfer over to, like, Blu-ray. These are going to be able to continue to be remastered again and again based off of how they were shot. Whereas modern-day movies are shot with digital cameras or things of that nature, there's nowhere for them to go up. Whereas these type of movies can be almost infinitely remastered to get better and better and clearer and clearer. It's pretty amazing to think that the older movies are actually could be just as clear as modern-day movies. You know, especially when we talk about some of these Hollywood big-budget movies of the 50s and 60s, we were talking Ten Commandments, Cleopatra came to mind, Lawrence of Arabia, some of these right. movies that are just incredibly shot on-site, off-site, you know, just the use of sunlight, the use of studio light, they just look incredible. And you're right, when they are remastered, they are beautiful. You need, you have to have a solid source video to yeah. remaster it. You have to have the film, you know, shot well. Everything has to be great off the master for you to upload it. And it's really surprising how some of these have survived the test of time. Yeah, and the Lawrence of Arabia just got re-released on 4K, and it's breathtaking. The same with the Ten Commandments. Ken, are know... there any uh, Vincent Price movies on 4K? No, there's none in 4K that I'm aware of. Those Roger Corman movies have to be coming soon because they have such a big following. I would find it hard to believe that they're not going to cash in on that. And of course, I'll correct and say the Ten Commandments, but that's not a true Vincent Price movie. But Vincent right. Price is in it. But as far as the Vincent Price horror films... No, but most of them have been able to be switched over to Blu-ray. And as you say, the transfer is really good. I mean, there might be benefit to going to 4K, but it looks good enough right now in the HD type of version that it's in. And there are many movies that have been upgraded from VHS, DVD, 480i, 480p, and the 1080p Blu-ray and look incredible. And they make the jump to 4K, and it is grainy. The color right. is bad. I mean, it really all depends on who is really doing the mastering on this upgrade. But you, you're absolutely right, Ken. These look just incredible as is. There's really no need for it to go to 4K. When you go to 4K, you risk over saturating certain colors right. overexposing and, is a lot of them and you said something that i really appreciate about these films at, at this time of uh, the use of lighting and shadows that's i think where the line is drawn and we had talked about this in other movies that know how to use shadows and lighting to great effect and i think it's a lost art i don't think Casablanca it's as we well. talked about yeah it is a good example there and i think as we've moved on to the digital format, as Ted said, we're kind of losing that art of lighting of movie and shadows. Making. Yeah, yeah, and another shadow is we talked about the shadows in A Clockwork Orange. We talked about Taxi Driver, just how the lighting is on that and how they use certain angles and things of that nature to really draw you in. And I understand the reason to go to digital. It's cheaper because you do want to store these to digital because film eventually degrades and you eventually will lose the film. A lot of these movies from the 30s and 40s and before that even, we've lost some of these and or we don't have really good copies even good copies like one of my favorite movies is mr smith goes to washington there's cuts in there and there and there's blemishes and, and that's even moving it to a 4k mastered i don't know when they got hold of the fact that they needed to take better care of their films but it feels like by the time they get to the 50s that they start to realize we need to make sure that we're protecting these yeah. films from the elements they realized for the 1950s, you can't leave these things in a an MGM warehouse that isn't climate controlled because these things are just going to degrade. 
we lose a lot of great TV shows because of that, too. I know people are, who are Doctor Who fans, they don't even have an episode of Doctor Who to go by because it's gone. That film is, is no longer in existence. All they have is the audio. And they actually recently, I think it was a couple of years ago, actually had to do an animated version and uh, link it up to the audio for us to actually witness what that episode would have looked like. That's kind of cool, it. though. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. But that's interesting that the BBC, because the BBC is, has usually been on the forefront of saving and... Not with their huh. older stuff. The BBC and, and a lot of Canadian television and Canadian movies. It's funny you talk about this because I was just listening to a podcast last week that was talking about this very subject. And they were saying that because their budgets are, are much less, not like traditional Hollywood movies, their budgets are considerably less. They use lower quality equipment. They use um, lower quality shoots, if you will. Things are done quicker. Everything is done at a rapid rate and nothing is really saved and uh, masterfully, if you will. So for you to tell me that, it's not surprising. Sad, but, but not surprising, yeah. This movie starts off very nicely with them coming into town and you have you kind of have that eerie feel of a New England town. And this is to make it look like we're in Salem. This is kind of like yeah. the Salem witch trials type of period. Arkham you is know. a made-up town in, in Massachusetts. Yes. Yeah, I was trying to look look it up. I'm but like, very Salem-esque. It's like a fishing port, so you have that fog that rolls in. Right. But this is all done, of course, on a soundstage. And this set is not very big, but they make it look big. They make everything here look big. The town, and especially the palace. The palace is just on a soundstage. Right. But it looks like we're right. in this big castle. They do a lot with not a lot. And I think that says something about the filmmaking of that time. It's all aspect ratio. And this is another part that we're losing as far as you talk about the magic of movie making is some props are smaller so the room looks bigger and things of that nature that really make what used to be the magic of movie making. But interestingly enough, you bring up the, the name Arkham. I know there's a whole bunch of people out there that are probably going Arkham. Batman. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Arkham Asylum is a major part of Batman lore, and Bob Keane, when he was writing Batman and included Arkham, it is a nod to H.P. Lovecraft. Because, and this goes back to, this is more of a Lovecraft movie than it is a Poe movie, because Arkham was a central location in a lot of H.P. Lovecraft books and stories. But this is the first, one of the first times we see Arkham on screen. And of course, it's become infamous because of Batman. And there's another little interesting tidbit that comes up later that has become part of the pop culture that we'll discuss when we come across that. Because the moment I saw Arkham, I'm like, was Vincent Price going to be in Batman? But Vincent Price was in the TV show Batman. He played the villain Egghead. Interesting about the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft reference, and yes, this movie is mostly based on a book that Lovecraft wrote called The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. The problem here was that Corman didn't want to make another Poe movie. He wanted to take right. a break from those Poe movies, and he wanted to do a Lovecraft movie, and the studios basically said, go ahead and do it. Now, it's very similar to... Poe's type of style of movies that Corman was doing. We have kind of the same look, the same kind of feel to it, but the studio basically didn't want to lose that momentum that they had with the success of Pit and the Pendulum, The Raven. They were on a roll with Edgar Allan Poe movies, so they decided to slap on this Edgar Allan Poe as another one of his films, which the only thing they do is basically cite a poem of his and put this in the palace. And that's all the two things have in common to it is basically the poem, and they put it in the palace. Everything else really is based on Lovecraft's novel. It's loosely based still. I mean, there's another movie called The Resurrected that's actually more accurate to the actual book. And I've never seen that movie, but I'm actually it's on my wish list now after watching this and getting to know a little bit more about this film. But Corman, I think, purposely misspells Edgar Allan Poe in the beginning credits because of the fact that of his displeasurement of having to add this. I didn't even on. notice that. 
Yeah, yes. that was that was in the um, director's review of uh, the movie. But you think he did that just because of his distaste yes, he didn't for the like direction? It. He didn't like it. But see, then Roger Corman had no control over it after the movie was shot in any of the distribution. Because, like Ken said, he wanted this to be a Lovecraft and not Edgar Allan Poe. But as an American international pictures yeah. are yeah. how ironic that they no were, one in their corporate would catch on that huh they were hell-bent for election on making this a poe movie and it's just not because eventually we're going to talk about something else that makes it distinctly hp lovecraft and you know hp lovecraft he's an heir to the edgar Allan poe mythos that edgar Allan poe created and so it's natural that you would move from edgar Allan poe to hp lovecraft but yeah this is definitely <laughs> an hp lovecraft movie but i thought that was kind of cool about arkham this is one of the first times we see arkham on screen and used and then it's used in batman all the time going into the movie and looking at the girl going to the castle or the palace if you may and she's in the trance and there's something that's done with her. I don't know if she gets to sleep with this demon god or whatever it is. They don't really tell us exactly what happens there. Yeah, because that... it's like 1963. They got to be very kind of okay. loose okay. with yeah. it. Yeah. We want to talk about the demon? Let's talk about because the demon. That demon is Cthulhu, right? Yeah. Yes, it looks like it's got to be Cthulhu. I mean, where this is Lovecraft. Cthulhu is Lovecraft's probably greatest creation. Cthulhu is kind of the eater of worlds. He is the biggest, I guess, for lack of a better term, demonic force that Lovecraft ever created. And this is one part where I wish Corman would have had a little bit more restraint. We really didn't need to see the very bad demon in the pit. The bad, out-of-focus demon. <laughs> yeah. Knowing that we know that this is Lovecraft... That has to be Cthulhu. So yeah, I don't know exactly what she's doing, but I did want to mention this, Ken. You had mentioned in your in your plot that this was 1765? Yes, I believe Correct. I said that. Yep, 1765. How, how did you find this out? Because they never tell you any time. The only way you know that this is set in the colonial times is Vincent Price is wearing the buckled shoes with the bloomers. And the hat. And then when we go to the quote-unquote modern time, he's wearing normal normal clothes. It's and like, of course, if the outfit of that, his, like... uh, his very attractive mistress. I had to bring that in there. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the first thing that grabbed me in the movie was his mistress. So I have to Ditto. That. Ditto. Who says no lines through the whole movie. No, she doesn't need to. Not a line. But... <laughs> It struck me because it's like, and this is another Corman thing. It's, he gives you no context. He does tell you 110 years have passed. Right. right. You're like, oh, okay. So we know 110 years have passed. Where are we talking? <laughs> I thought I saw Hooters calendar in the back of the bar. That's how I knew it was 1865, I think, at that time. 1875. Or 1875. Now, I Hooters calendar. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think there. it's mentioned by... Roger Corman on the director's notes, but I could be wrong on that. But it's colonial time that we know of. They go to that place and they, yeah, they burn him alive. But the funny part about taking Vincent Price out of that palace and putting him onto that tree and burning him alive, it's like a good 10 seconds that flames are really going on his feet and yeah, his legs. He's, and he's, he doesn't say anything. He, he doesn't do anything. And all of a sudden no he got, selling it. And he's yeah. like, no. Uh, no, he doesn't put up much of a fight. Either. Not much of a fight. No, yeah, he just no. kind of goes. He's kind of go with the flow, and he's standing there, and then all of a sudden he's ah. <laughs> but then immediately when it cuts back to the tree, he's a charred corpse. Yeah, exactly. Charred charred, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Where's the yeah. Where's the marshmallows or the s'mores? You know, it's <laughs> right. time to light them up. It, and it's also interesting that the the townsfolk lets him go ahead and put a curse on them. You know, hey, you got any last request? Yeah, let me get this curse out really quick on you guys before you burn me. And, of course, he doesn't look like the bigger dick. It's the, the one town's guy who wants to light him on fire because he took his, his girlfriend away from him. Right. He, he seems like more the dick than the guy who's actually selling the souls to these demon gods over here. Right. <laughs> then we, 110 years later, and everybody looks the same. Couldn't they just make They're a the few people? Same. Oh, I know. The you exact know, bigger, same bigger sideburns. I don't know. <laughs> fluffier hair. All yeah, you get is like a web hand. That's all you get is one guy with totally a web hand. Totally carbon copy people, yeah. 
Yeah. Everybody else, it's the... could, could you put glasses or like a beard on one of them or eye patch or something just to kind of make them a little bit different? No, all you get is one web hand and everybody else looks basically the same, talks exactly. the same. It probably has the same jobs. I mean, the doctor must have been the doctor 110 years ago. I, you know, same bartender, I believe. I mean, come on. Yep. I mean, it's, I don't mind doing it a couple. And if you explained it, like that was part of the curse. That you they know, never aged or anything. That, yeah, maybe maybe they're not descendants. Maybe they're still the original people. But, of course, right. they have the name change, so we know that's not the case. When it's all said and done, this is a B-movie. This is not a major studio. He doesn't have the money. Even though these were successful films, the Poe films were successful, he still doesn't have the money. He only gets the 15 days to shoot this. He has to cut corners. Not only with that, but also with the script, because there's a lot of things in this movie that we don't get to know about. I could jump all the way to the end and say, we don't know what happens to the other two warlocks or his mistress. They just disappear into <laughs> burn thin alive, air. we assume, right? Maybe burn alive. I hear that there was at least a plan for them to kind of get the picture out of the palace, even though it was oh. kind of destroyed. But there, What happened but there to was, Hester? Well, that's what I'm saying. We don't what know happened what happened to Hester. Yeah, we don't know what happened. Don't, we don't know, know what, what happened, happened to her. Oh. She and Lon Chaney Jr. probably burned up in the castle. I guess I could make up my own ending that Cthulhu And the movies are, are fairly short. All of these Vincent Price movies are what? Less than an hour and a half. This podcast yeah, might be longer than this movie. So we'll... Possibly. So Vincent Price's character, Charles, is the great-great-grandson of Joseph, right? Right. Joseph yeah. had kids. As far as I know, he had uh, a child that died in childbirth, and that's it. Wife died during childbirth. Where did this kid of his come from? How is he a great-great-grandpa? It's definitely a stretch. It's, it's, I mean, like you had just said, as far as having people take close quality control over the script was not a top priority. They play fast and loose with things. I mean... I mean, and the other two warlocks, I mean, are, do we know for sure that these are descendants? Nope. We nope. don't know I that. Thought they, I thought they were the same people. Same purple you, people. Because you, you mentioned that in, this, in the plot summary, too, and that was another yeah. big, big reveal that I was like, really? You don't get any sort of... <laughs> acknowledgement that, that hey, they're just because the i same read thing. the plot doesn't mean i believe what the plot said that is something that i got from wikipedia and some other sites that said that this is the case you know especially with the green makeup which they're so inconsistent with the makeup when it comes they are. to they are. with, uh, with uh, cheney <laughs> his makeup sometimes looks greener than other times here's the other thing he he makes them dinner you saw the kitchen right First of all, you, are you keeping pet snakes in the stove yep. or something? I mean, that and all thing was the, And all the cobwebs. <laughs> Somehow you're making dinner. It's probably snake. It's pro- We're having snake for dinner tonight, everyone. So Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> it's Crocodile Dundee. He's going to make you some snakes. Well, come on, man. It's, it's 15 days to shoot this thing. So they're like, just keep moving. Keep moving. We'll, just, we'll, we'll edit it out in production. Just keep moving. Well, Eric, you had mentioned as far as the length of the movie, these were meant to be double feature matinee movies that movie theater could show for a quarter early Saturday afternoon for a double feature. Then the theater could show the money-making movies later. That's what these were all designed to do. And so they couldn't be more than like an hour and a half. So this fits right into that mold very well there's a lot of fun things with this movie when joseph Kerwin is burnt at the stake or at the tree uh, so are we to assume then that he transfers his soul into this picture because his great great grandson has no he's not acting weird until he looks at the picture and then when he looks at the picture all of a sudden like instantaneously, he turns into Joseph. We Pearl. we are assuming that because at the end, when the when the picture is burned by the townspeople, right. that's when uh, he breaks out of his trance. But then and, at the end, the end. Now you're like, well, what's going on? So yeah, it could go either well, way, I guess. They they do end up, I believe, at the same tree. Yeah, I don't know yeah, if the tree the has tree. any. That's true. I don't know if the tree, tree has anything to do with it, but. 
you know, it would have been nice if in the movie before the townspeople show up, he's there looking at a picture of himself, that he's looking at it before they actually take him back and burn him at the at his tree. Then I, I would feel like there's a connection between him and that painting, and maybe part of his soul is in there, kind of like the Harry Potter series where Voldemort leaves his soul in all these Never different seen it. locations. You will eventually. Or, um, or if we're going to go with a movie of the time, the picture of Dorian Gray. Dorian Gray was yeah. wasn't that written in the 1800s? 18, yeah, it was. I think it was Eric who basically, or no, it might have been Ted that said he, he's basically a toasted marshmallow before it's all said and done <laughs> <laughs> instantly. But I do like Vincent Price here in this dual role. So I love him as Charles, but when he's Joseph, it's a whole nother level. But I love to see the back and forth because I think when he's outside of movies, he comes across as being this sweet guy. He doesn't come out as being this master of horror. So when they come into town with his wife and they go into that inn, he's just trying to get directions. I love the line when they're trying to tell him to leave town and they're not going to tell him where his place is at. That's what I like about you, uh, like New Englanders. I, I heard New England hospitality. Yes. Hospitality. He's, yeah. he's, so he's kind of a jab because <laughs> they're being so rude to him. I'm not sure how I feel about the makeup job of these descendants where you have the girl who's blind looks like maybe play-doh is put uh, you know around her eyes or no i think they just extent. put eye patches over and then just globbed I, it with uh with, some type uh, of glob yeah i actually think that's part of one of the scariest parts of the the movie if we're actually talking about freaky things i thought they actually did really good i like it better with the one eye like guy i like that better than both eyes kind of being closed up and then you have the uh the smaller guy and I guess when all four of them come out, that's actually the town that actually sends them out to scare them. We don't actually get that that's what they're doing. I actually, I do think they, they say well, that. The doctor, the doctor tells them that. The doctor okay. actually tells them that. The doctor does mention that that was their their plan. And then you can see in the background the two, you know, gotcha. blimey, it didn't work. You know? Yeah. So that's the thing. When, they, when the doctor comes over for dinner, I wish the doctor, when he's telling them all these stories... I wish he would tell them things that we need to know as the audience as well. He's kind of telling them things we already kind of know as the audience. So fill in the gaps at that time at dinner <laughs> to help us out a little bit. Right. So he, he does mention that there's two other warlocks. So that does help when we see these two other people. We don't think that they're just servants, that we know that they're the other two warlocks that they couldn't find. So that that's good to know. But there's a lot of other things that he could have mentioned that could have filled in some gaps a lot easier for us. Ken, you had brought up the fact that Vincent Price, he's coming off of, at this point in time, when he comes into the Haunted Palace, he's coming off of a performance in The Fall of the House of Usher that's lauded as one of the best performances of his career, where he does a dual type of role there as well. And of course, there's the Mask of the Red Death. But he is at the peak of his game here. But to say this is wheelhouse for him, it's that's to put it mildly. He's brilliant here because he does come off, even though as a viewer, we know it's Vincent Price, so we know he's the bad guy. He does have a charm to him that he brings to Charles that it makes him rather endearing. And that's why he does so well with these dual roles. And that's why the last picture of the movie is as convincing as it is, is because he's convincing in the role. At the end of the day, he's a wonderful actor. My favorite part is when he's looking at the picture and his facial expressions start to change slowly. He does something with his forehead to basically finish off the change to all of a sudden become Joseph. And those are special actors. When actors right. are able to take their face and make that change in their face from one character to the other. You know, and we know Vincent Price to be one hell of a voice actor, too. But he does this all with just a facial expression. And then it comes to voice later on. We have the sweet husband that has a little bit maybe of a higher-pitched voice and a Lately, little bit yeah. more. But then, then you have Joseph, who is more stern, and he's a little bit more deeper and a little bit more abrasive and... He's more demanding. 
he changes how they speak too. They have different speech patterns. Yeah, Charles is more um, like a thespian, kind of like yeah. he speaks more articulate, and the other character is more just simple, kind of, you know, hey, conversational. You know, he's making smart-ass comments to the townspeople. That's yeah. something that Joseph probably would not do. He'd be like, off oh, oh, no, he, or something. Yeah, he would just burn him right there. He'd burn him, yeah, he'd just throw gasoline on him, torture him. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah well, I wonder what he threw on him to, to burn that one guy. <laughs> I mean, Probably kerosene, kerosene, kerosene. whale oil, yeah. <laughs> But kerosene yeah. burns at such a low Again, man, such we're, a low temperature. We're splitting hairs here, big time. I love how the the burnt guy looks afterwards, though. It is, yeah. If you want to talk some really good uh, makeup, that's pretty good. We we were talking earlier about the sets, but how they dress everything up in the palace, for instance, and how they make the look the town to look. I really enjoy both these areas. And I already said they already have a, a small area to work with. But that palace looks huge. There's all those paintings. I know Vincent Price himself got to select some of the paintings. The art direction here in this film is really good. And this is why these movies work, is because you have some people that are working in the background doing their job and doing it well. I believe Francis Coppola was also part of this crew. You can say what you want about, you know, being a B-movie director and stuff, but when he's paired up with Vincent Price and he does movies like this, even though they're cutting corners and stuff, th- these are fun movies. I could see why they're getting them out as matinees, because these are kind of probably aimed at 15 to 30-year-olds, somewhere in that particular area. The ones that like a little bit of a fright, a little bit of a scare, then that's who went to go see matinees, was kids. Especially in and the right, summer. And not kids. considered money makers for the theaters. Like Ted said earlier, these were the setup movies for something bigger later on in the evening. Yeah. So. Like a, a 10 or 11 year old could go in for a quarter and spend three hours and, you know, have popcorn and soda for, you know, 35 cents. But you'd mentioned, Ken, and I'm glad you brought up the four, Francis Ford Coppola was part of this crew because I think that if you look at Coppola's later career, I think that you can really make a a correlation with a movie like The Haunted Palace with how he shot and directed Bram Stoker's Dracula, where he took that same movie-making style and brought it to modern-day cinema. And that's why I think that Bram Stoker's Dracula works as well as it does, even though it was before Keanu Reeves had dropped the surfer accent i absolutely love bram stoker's dracula i know that there are a lot of people that don't care for it for one reason or another but i think if you have an affinity for these corman style movies these matinee movies it's hard to not see where the advancement goes to what coppola did with like i said with bram stoker's dracula but all of these matinee movies kind of had a major influence because if you look at Star Wars, Lucas did a lot of his stuff, or did Star Wars based off of a lot of these matinee-type serial movies. Yeah, people would say shorts. that uh, he ripped off a lot of stuff from them. Well, yeah. I mean, he did. I don't so, know if I, I would mean, say it's... rip off. I would say honoring those type of films. I mean, the problem with the 50s and 60s was the fact that they didn't realize that the movies that they had could make them big money as well. I mean, I look at these movies that did well, like The Raven and The Pit and the Pendulum and The House of Usher. These type of movies, these could have been even bigger than just matinee movies. We are also still in the studio era. That's the reason why you had those distinctions between a matinee movie and, a, let's say, a box office movie, where because of how the studio wanted it to be marketed. So if you had something for MGM, guess what? It's going to be shown at night. But maybe a subsidiary of MGM or one of these lower-class studios, they're going to be your matinee guy. Horror itself was considered matinee. I mean, because even the universal horror movies, the movie monster movies, were not primetime releases horror movies were have been (laughs) yeah have been the stepping stones for these come studios for a long time and then it wasn't until like the late 50s and into the 60s that the smaller studios like american international and other houses 
were able to realize that they could produce them for small budgets, but make $1.2 million like the Haunted Palace did, just based off of being a matinee movie. And But then also out of that, that's where we get the Hammer movies, too. Hammer horror movies are amazing as well. If you look at Vincent Price stars in some of those, as well as Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, that's the holy trinity of early horror. If you look at those Hammer movies, they're kind of shot very similar to the Corman movies that we're seeing here. They got the same type of color that pops, uh, using of the shadows and, and angles. Hammer Films goes a little bit further with blood yes. and and a little yes. bit more gore. But as far as the feel and look to it, they're both very similar. But yeah, you're right, cause, and they're taking advantage of it because they're spending lesser money to make these films, but making the same type of gross and then they're making up, right. you know, they're making that money. And and Haunted Palace wasn't the bigger money winner as, let's say, The Pit and the Pendulum was, or The House of Usher, or, or The Raven. And I think before this was Tales of Terror, which that's also a, a great flick to watch because those are mini movies within a movie. So if you've never right. seen Tales of Terror, definitely check that one out as well. It's like Creepshow style, right? Yes, yes, very much like Creepshow's. The thing about this movie is it's all Vincent Price. Everybody else is just kind of an onlooker, even, and you have Lon Chaney. I mean, you have the werewolf himself. As far as, like, his major roles, this... Like a horror this movie, was, might, this might be the last yeah. one that he does. In fact, he does a, a decent job, but he he was a heavy drinker, and he didn't take care of himself yeah. very well. But as far as what I've heard from interviews with actors like Vincent Price and Roger Corman, he was a joy to work with. Very nice guy, but he didn't have a high opinion of himself, and that's why he drank. He was always kind of worried about what people thought of him. He just had inner demons that, you know, led him to drink. There's no bad performances here. We talk about the actress that plays the mistress. She doesn't even have any lines. Kathy Merchant. Doesn't have any movie um, credits. Not that I saw. I could be wrong. She's just there for kind of eye candy. But the one that plays Ann Ward, that's Deborah Paget, And she was uh, also in the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, with, yeah. With Vincent Price. And she actually had a, a pretty decent career, but this is actually her last movie that mm-hmm. she does. And then I believe she ended up having like a talk show on like uh, one of those uh, Christian channels. I think it's the Trinity Broadcast Network, TBM. Um, that's a change. <laughs> it is a change. You know, she became a, a, a devoted that's a left Christian. Turn. <laughs> yeah, she became a devoted uh, Christian. And sorry, uh, man, so... devoted Christians are not on TBN. I'm not defending <laughs> well, TBN at all. No, so. I mean, that, that's but that some, is a pretty pretty 180 there from a movie role of doing horror movies with Lon Chaney to being on a. Uh, talk show yeah host. that's some uh jimmy swaggart sort of stuff i thought she was really good in this movie as uh, yeah, she was. as the wife she was really good she played a very strong woman one that was who supported her husband but was also strong extent. in her own way as it's, far as being a strong woman or being you know, supportive of her husband yeah because they do uh, she's very supportive but as far as being strong, let's don't quite go that far. Um, it's still of the 60s, where she's told that she needs to be in her place more than once by Vincent Price. Um, That's why I think she's strong, is because she keeps defying him throughout the whole movie. She doesn't just do what he tells. She goes down and she checks on him and see what's happening. I think she is. I mean, she goes sneaks off into the dungeon area and and gets caught down there, she's always defying him. So it's, I think she is stronger than I think you're giving her credit for. And when her and, then, and the, and the doctor come back, the doctor's like, wait here in the cart. And she's like, no, yeah, I'm it's coming. Like, it's interesting. But one of the other interesting things that pops up here for the very first time is the Necrocomicon. If anybody out there is thinking, I've heard that before. Say that three where times I, fast, Ted. Where have I heard that? <laughs> That is one of the central parts of the Evil Dead, is the oh, Necrocomicon. Oh, okay. The Book and of the Dead. The, Book yep, of the Dead. The Book of the Dead. And this has popped up all over pop culture. 
And it's an H.P. Lovecraft creation, just like Arkham and Cthulhu. And But this is the first time it was put on film. That's pretty cool. Especially those of you who love the Evil Dead series and that it's popped up in other places as well. It's it's just a really neat little thing because when I was watching it for the first time, the first thing that struck me, of course, is because it's set in Arkham, was the Arkham thing. So I immediately had to pause the movie and look up whether or not Arkham is related to Arkham from Batman. And then the second thing that caught me was when they mentioned the Necrocomicon. And I'm like... No way. That can't be the same thing that was from The Evil Dead. And, and of course it is. I I just, it's telling how influential, because now when you start to get into The Evil Dead, you see the influence that these sort of movies had on Sam Raimi as well. And so when we transferring over from the late 70s into the early 80s horror, and you have guys like Sam Raimi pop up and John Carpenter, you see... The, a lot of the same sort of things pop up from these Corman movies or the Hammer movies. I think it's a telling legacy that they that they have. And these are both possession movies. The Evil Dead is a possession movie, so is right. the Haunted Palace. And that's that's our theme for this month of October for Halloween is being possessed. Yeah, when I saw that book, I called up Ted and I was like, Ted, this is the first time this has ever been in a movie. And we were like, really? And we just had to, you know, look it up. But yeah, it, it makes me want to read the book. I want to read the book of the from this the Necrocomicon. I have oh, that. You want you want to have that book? Yeah. You are you, you a warlock? How did you think I created this podcast to begin with? Of course, it's, it's all Sweet. from a book. No, I, I I want to read the book regarding this film. As far as I want to read the Lovecrafts, it's available on video. Audible. Yes, I saw that. I actually, you can YouTube it. And you can listen oh, to yeah? it on YouTube. Yeah, and that, and like I said earlier, I want to see also the film Resurrected. This isn't one of Lovecraft's longer novels. This is be more accurate, be a novella. It's I think it's only like 170 pages. It takes so about it's not, five hours to read. But yeah, as with anything with Lovecraft, it's definitely worth your time. He was an amazing writer, and he was an amazing creator. Just don't look too much further than that. I know Ted would kind of appreciate this a little bit. Elijah Cook, who plays one of the townspeople, he's the guy who ends up with the web hand. So he is a big film nor kind of guy. Yeah, He's been in tons of those type of movies, including one of our favorites, The Maltese Falcon. Yes, I immediately recognized him. He's kind of one of those actors, like me and uh, Eric always talk about, like Charles Durning, these character actors that... We kind of appreciate, you know, that they're they're in everything, but they're never like the main star of it. They're not leading men, of, but they're they're there. They're a, a vibrant they're part of the guy movie actors. they're in. They're that guy. They're yeah. that guy. That I guy. know that guy. That's Charles. Durning. I've seen that guy. And he was also in the House on Haunted Hill with Vincent Price. So, Makes sense. Charles so, Durning. Yes, yeah. Charles Durning. Yeah, Charles wow. as a baby, <laughs> probably. So you you have some really good character actors in this movie, but it it really does just belong to Vincent Price. I do wish we saw a little bit more of the struggle. I wish it was a little bit, but because (laughs) it's less than an hour and a half, kind of have to go right into the possession. Kind of. It plays plays part of the campy fun. It does it just the right way. Uh, I mean, if we're going to go in depth, if we're making a two and a half hour, two hour and 15 minute movie about this. Yeah. I mean, you can have the inner struggle, but where's my backstory, Ted? I want my backstory. Well, gotta have uh, yeah, the backstory. I, uh, you need more backstory. <laughs> How about the three like, generations more, between you need uh, more 17, cowbell. Well, that's, that's the thing, Eric, is they talk about the other generations not working. Remember yeah. the, <laughs> They actually say something that this one is going to work. Like the other, the grandson and maybe the son or right. whatever, or the daughter. They kind of mentioned that they weren't they weren't going to work, but this one was going to work. So weird. Let's ask Very you, subtle. So do we, let's take a poll. Do we think, is this a demonic curse or is this just birth defects from bad water? <laughs> well, it's not Michigan, so I'm going to go with uh, curse. So. I'm going to go with Curse because Curse is I don't know, fun. man. There's a lot of heavy metals there, like the Crucible and stuff, you know? The heavy metal, like, 
like Metallica? Yeah, like, like a lot Megadeth? of Metallica in this. In this, uh, yeah. Put oh, them okay. in the Iron Maiden. Yes, that's right. Iron Maiden. Well, Vincent Price, he does the intro to one of Iron Maiden's best songs, Number of the Beast. There you go. I like it a lot that at the end of the movie we get the Vincent Price talk over. Because, of course, people of our age, this is what we know Vincent Price for. He reads the the lines from Thriller. A lot of people our age are going to have had their first introduction to Vincent Price. So I thought that was cool at the end that we got him speaking the lines from the poem that connects it to Edgar Allan Poe. I don't like it actually at the end. For me, it just sounds off. It does. It sounds like it's misplaced for whatever reason. Maybe because the poem has nothing to do with the movie. Yes, but for me, it has to do with the way he says it. It feels like, it's on like a separate audio track that's not on it the is. same. So it sounds kind of off. I think it could have sounded so much better if they would have used more professional equipment. It sounded like it was done off of a tape recorder and then this thrown onto this movie. It probably you was. Could, this was American International forcing the Edgar Allan Poe theme onto the movie. That's exactly what it was. Ultimately, at the end of this, because it's a possession movie... And we have that great look at the end, which (laughs) we got a similar look at the end, of course, in Clockwork Orange of Alex at the end about whether or not he was truly bad at the end. So was Charles possessed at the end? Is he good or is he still Joseph? I say he's possessed. The language changes. Yeah, because we don't get to see what happens to the other two warlocks, but we know that the two warlocks and the mistress are with him. At the end, when the doctor goes ahead and saves Anne, and he has to run back. But they're gone. Why are they gone? Because they were able to get rid of Charles. I think they choked Charles to death. They can't kill Charles, because then they kill Joseph. They need the body. Well, here's the thing. They may have choked him to the point where he lost consciousness, and and Joseph was able. manifested into him. And then Joseph took over, and there was no no more Charles. Well, Ken has written some nice fan fiction. Or they, they uh, made, his, maybe his they house did of a... the Honda Palace fan fiction. Yeah, maybe they did some type uh, of a spell on him while they had him. Maybe in they did. Control. Maybe maybe Cthulhu uh, inhabits Maybe Cthulhu, everybody. yeah, yeah. Maybe. I mean, cause if you because if you watch at the end there, they are kind of wrestling him down. They don't burn like, him, though. No, they don't burn him. But it isn't does that, look like that... they're going to physically harm him, it looks right. like. Right. They don't go after her and try to keep her there. They focus on him and doing something to him, and I think it is basically getting rid of Charles permanently. To protect us from the wrath of Cthulhu, I will say Cthulhu inhabits everybody and destroys everything, because that's what Cthulhu does. And Isn't we there an Iron hail. Maiden song called Cthulhu? There is. Or no, no, Metallica. that's Metallica. Metallica. Yes, it's off. That's right. It's off. Ride the lightning. There we and go. It's called the Call of Cthulhu. Call of Cthulhu. And, that's right. Uh, to make sure that we don't anger Cthulhu, I must say that Cthulhu rules everybody. Because once you speak his name, he will come for you. Kind of like Candyman. Well, now we're doing a completely different podcast. The Cthulhu podcast. We're actually going to change our name to the Cthulhu podcast in honor of Cthulhu. <laughs> okay. okay. One last thing I will talk about this movie is the revenge that he has on the townspeople. He kills revenge. The, the two townspeople and... You guys have he only lines kills two of them, but he's got a list. He has a list. He's checking it twice. You know, he he knows who's <laughs> naughty. He doesn't think any of them are nice. But that's right. He, uh, but I like how the fact his look and his desire to go ahead and kill off, especially these first two, because the first two are are kind of like the biggest reasons why he's dead. One held the torch, and the other <laughs> one took the torch from him and threw it at him. So right, I like though his look. Like every time. Like after he releases the monster, the kills. I guess supposedly his dad. I guess that's his son that he has locked up. And yeah. the look on his face, and then how he tears the name off of the list, is priceless. Get it, Prince? Yeah. Price. Yes. Well played. Well played. Yeah. Uh, but well played, sir. and then when he lights the the dumps the kerosene on him and lights the match and throws it on him, the look on his face, it's of evil. And then the, how he's just sitting there at the table and eating and enjoying the revenge and 
how he just wants to keep on going. You have Lon Chaney playing the kind warlock. Devil's where he's advocate like, here. He's, Isn't it enough, Lon Charles? Like, Are, aren't we done? He's like, no, we're never done. I'm going to kill them all. <laughs> more potatoes. It's, it's great. Yes, it's, yes. Yeah, give me more potatoos. Be quiet, Simon. It's great. It's a lot of fun. And they way. never seem like real warlocks. They seem like his servants. No. They do, they totally. Do. Like I said, there was the one creepy part with the people that are all deformed and stuff. It kind of has a freaks type of uh, feel to it. You know, one of the other things is kind of that is kind of creepy is we get a really cool shot. We were talking about shadows. When Charles's wife is going through the, the dungeon area and she comes upon Lon Chaney and he's in the dark. And it's like you don't know exactly what that is. It's not like a jump scare like we get in modern day movies, but it's like a, wow, that's that's where you realize, wow, that's Lon Chaney. That's the Wolfman. And it, it was kind of scary. That's the inconsistent makeup that I see throughout the whole film. Oh, yeah. In that part, he looks really, really like, like he has aged 100 years old. That's why I also thought that this wasn't a descendant, that this is the, the original guy, because he looks like he's aged a lot now. And I don't know if it's magic that kind of keeps him looking younger in other scenes, but some scenes he looks extremely old and extremely green, and other scenes he doesn't look that green and he doesn't look that old. I don't know if that was done on purpose. I just think that's just inconsistency of Roger Corman, and because Roger Corman is kind of inconsistent when it comes to his movies. That's one of my favorite shots in the movie, though, where it's just his silhouette and he's backlit and she's walking down that corridor. I thought that was pretty cool. Cool. Well, should we get into our reviews? Let's do it. So start us off, Ted. I was very pleasantly surprised with this movie. I know Ken had recommended it to me, I believe even before, that this was a movie that I should have I should watch. And I'm really glad that he had chosen it to watch because I did thoroughly enjoy this movie. Is it the best movie ever made? No. Is it the best horror movie ever made? No. But is it a hell of a lot of fun? Yeah. And if you have an hour and a half, it's worth your time to sit there and check it out. You don't have to think about it too much. And the bad-looking demon that pops out that they look down upon in Cthulhu with Cthulhu, it's still fun. Are there Man, some you just like that... saying Cthulhu, don't you? I love Cthulhu. Uh, apparently. Um, because he will, he will eat us all. Because he's the destroyer of everything. It's his word of the and day. No, because we're honoring Cthulhu because he will kill us all. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, um, Beetlejuice. Candyman, exactly. Candyman. Anyway. But anyway, it's just just a lot of fun, and it's a good movie. At the end of the day, I think I have to give this movie a B minus because of how much fun it was. I mean, there's a lot of really cool things that come out of this movie. Some pop culture stuff that comes out of this movie that, had I not watched the movie, I would never have even known how some of the things that I really think are neat have gotten their their origins like the use of arkham and the necrocomicon i think those two things right there that's worth the price of admission to just figure out that i mean i already knew that lovecraft was awesome but to see that these are the first time these were really used on screen and they've become such pop culture things so that's why i have to land this with a b minus because it's just fun very cool well, my review is uh, fairly similar. I am not a real Vincent Price fan. I've seen a lot of his movies. And again, this one kind of uh, slipped by me, but I am glad that we did review it. It is one uh, that I would watch again. I do like the color. Um, I do like the cinematography in this. I think it's it's very well shot, especially for the budget and the time frame that you have. I think it's an in- incredibly well shot movie. The plot is interesting. It's a very simple plot to follow. There's no real twists or turns in this. It's a pretty straightforward, simple, early 60s horror movie. It's got an interesting cast. And Vincent Price really is good in whatever he does. So this movie for me is actually a very surprising watch. I'm very happy that we were able to watch and review this movie. And again, it is something that I will probably watch again if I ever have a a Vincent Price marathon. So I'm kind of like Ted. I was really wavering between a C plus, B minus. But for the genre, this is an above average movie. 
it literally is a B movie. So for me, it's going to be a B minus. How about you, Ken? So Vincent Price is one of my favorite actors of all time. I love watching his movies, especially around Halloween. A few years back, I actually did a Vincent Price double feature where I had people come over and watch a couple Vincent Price movies. We watched House of Wax and The Haunted Palace. I'm not going to say this is my favorite Vincent Price movie. But I think I was is... there for that, wasn't I? I don't think you stayed for the second one. And I don't oh. saw you didn't see The Haunted Palace. Good point. You if, you did, if you did The Haunted Palace, I didn't see it. Okay. There you go. I like it almost because nobody else I know had seen it. And it was kind of almost a movie that was mine. But I, I, I needed to share this movie. And I wanted you guys to see this movie. Because I do think that there's something special about this. And I think it's because Vincent Price is doing two roles here. He's doing them well. Granted, I'm more interested in Joseph Kerwin. And when Vincent Price plays evil, when he switches that switch of his that turns him from this ordinary guy to the evilest guy on on the face of the planet, it's wonderful to watch. You enjoy it. You sit back and you eat your popcorn or whatever snacks that you have with you, and you have a smile on your face. You appreciate the performance. Ted had mentioned The Mask of the Red Death, and that would be something down the road that I really hope we get to do. You really appreciate him not just being a horror actor, but just being a really good actor. As far as where this movie falls for me, this movie's a B plus. It's something that I watch every year, and I've watched it already a few times for this podcast, and I'm not done yet. So I'll probably watch it again sometime before the year's out. And if you've never seen this movie before, enjoy it. Enjoy all of Vincent Price movies. They're they're a fun watch, and you can't go wrong. All right. Very cool. Very cool indeed. I definitely agree with uh, Ken's uh, sentiments about that. Uh, you might want to check out some other Vincent Price movies that are out there, some that we have uh, brought up on this very podcast. Ted, where can they find us on Twitter? Well, we can be found on our new Twitter handle, the Hooked on Movies podcast. Our new Twitter handle is at hooked on underscore movies. We are done with our uh, possession phase of movies, if you will. And we are going to move right into some uh, political slash conspiracy slash thrillers here. So, so we're basically kicking... still possession series. Is, still is possession series. Okay. Absolutely. We're going to kick it off with uh, the 1991 classic JFK. And then we're going to roll right into 1976's uh, All the President's Men. And we're going to end it with a movie that probably not a lot of you have heard of from 1972. It's called The Candidate, starring Robert Redford, one of his uh, his great movies. And we're hoping that you'll be able to check out all of these and keep listening to Hooked on Movies. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and have a great evening. See you at the movies. See you next time at Hooked on Movies. <laughs>